You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 127, by Rudolf Steiner, translated by Matthew Barton, 16 lectures entitled The Mission of the New Spirit Revelation, The Pivotal Nature of the Christ Event in Earth Evolution. This is Lecture 12, entitled The Mission of the New Spirit Revelation, Introductory Words for the Cycle, Spiritual Guidance of the Human Being and Humanity, Readers Aside, and that is on this website, Uh, End of Readers Aside, given in Copenhagen on the 5th of June, 1911. Over the next few days, I will have the privilege of speaking about a theme that I consider important, the spiritual guidance of the human being and humanity. At the request of our friends, I will preface these lectures with a few words that may be taken as a kind of introduction to this theme. Anthroposophists inevitably feel what we may call a longing for true self-knowledge in the broadest sense. Those who have delved even a little into anthroposophical life will feel that this self-knowledge must give birth to a comprehensive understanding of all human feeling and thinking, of every other being, and that such understanding must be indivisibly connected with our whole anthroposophic movement. The fact that the symbol you know as the cross with roses has such pride of place within our anthroposophic movement is something so easily misunderstood. It is especially easy to harbor misunderstandings about the spiritual movement which under the sign of the rose cross seeks to find its way into the culture of our day, to find its way into human hearts and their feelings, to find its way into human will and its deeds. It is easy for misunderstandings to arise here, since for many, also well-meaning souls of the present day, it is extraordinarily difficult to recognize that the spiritual movement seeking to work in harmony with this symbol is entirely governed by principles and by feelings of universal tolerance for all human striving and outlooks. This lies deep in the foundations of the Rose Cross movement, and is something that may be less immediately noticeable, but it is still intrinsic to it. And so you will easily find that this movement is misunderstood in those quarters where real tolerance is confused with a narrower tolerance only for one's own opinion, one's own principles and approaches. People imagine tolerance to be a very easy thing, and yet tolerance of the very highest kind is one of the most difficult things to achieve. It is easy to think that someone who says something other than we do is our opponent. We can also easily confuse our own opinion with what is generally propounded as truth. But anthroposophic life will flourish and bear the right fruits for the culture and spiritual life of the future if it becomes an inclusive soil upon which we meet each other meeting in inward understanding not only those who believe what we ourselves believe, but those too who, through their own experiences, 
their own path in life, feel it necessary to assert what seems to be the opposite of what we ourselves assert. An old form of morality, which is now waning, taught that love and tolerance should be practiced amongst those who hold the same thoughts and feelings as we do ourselves. But anthroposophic life, in its true form, will increasingly imbue human hearts with that much deeper form of tolerance that enables us to find mutual understanding, mutual stimulus, human community, even with those with whom our thoughts and feelings are not initially in accord. This touches on an important point. For what do people first encounter when they turn their attention to our anthroposophic movement? What do they first find necessary to acknowledge? Even though this central insight does not have to be a dogma, and though there can be differences of opinion, even here, a universal insight that people first encounter when they approach our movement is the idea of reincarnation, teachings about the causes in one life that lead to circumstances in another. Reincarnation and karma are convictions that appear paramount from the very beginning. But we travel a long way between the first moment, when these truths become our conviction, to the day when, in a sense, we place our whole life, our whole existence, into the light of these ideas, these truths. A long time may pass between the day when this conviction dawns on us and the day when it can come to full life within our soul. Let us imagine that we face someone who meets us with disparagement and insult. If we have dwelt long enough upon the teachings of reincarnation and karma, we will be able to ask who it is who has uttered injurious or insulting words that have penetrated our ears and overwhelmed us with their scorn, and may even have raised their hand to strike the other. And we will be able to reply, We ourselves. The hand is only seemingly that of the other person, for I am myself the person who, through my past karma, solicited the blow that the other has given me. This is just to give a sense of the length of road we must travel from an abstract theoretical conviction about karma and reincarnation to the point where we can place the whole of our life into the light of this thought. Then, besides feeling the God within us as an experience of our own higher self, teaching us how we participate in the divine with a spark of our own being, we also in particular learn this, that there is implicit in our higher self a sense of unbounded responsibility, not only for the actions we ourselves take, but also for what we suffer. And this is simply because what we currently suffer is only the necessary consequence of what we ourselves did long ago. And now let us feel such an outlook penetrating our soul like the warm spiritual lifeblood of a new culture. Let us feel how new ideas of responsibility, new ideas also of loving kindness toward others arise and take root in our soul through anthroposophic life. Let us feel it to be more than an empty phrase to say that the anthroposophic movement emerged in our era because humanity needs new moral impulses, new intellectual and spiritual impulses. 
and let us feel that it is not merely arbitrary that a new revelation in the spiritual domain is arising for humanity and must flow into our hearts, into our convictions, but that this new spirit revelation is necessary for these new moral impulses, these new ideas of responsibility, that, indeed, human destiny requires this. Then we can have a direct and vivid sense of the coherent meaning it has for the world, that these same souls sitting in bodies gathered here today were previously incarnated so many times upon this earth. And we have to ask accordingly, why so many times? This gains meaning by virtue of the fact that we come to understand through anthroposophy that each time we inhabit a new body and look out through new eyes upon the glories of the world, we can intimate divine revelations behind the veil of the sensory world or can hearken through new ears to the divine realities revealed to us in the world of tones. And through this we learn to see that in each new incarnation we can and should experience new and different things. Then we will also feel that there must be people whose karma destines them to prefigure and prophesy what will slowly and gradually become apparent to all humanity as the meaning of a particular era. What can first be grasped and understood by members of this spiritual movement through revelations from the world of spirit must flow into all human culture. The souls who live their way into the world through the bodies they now have feel themselves drawn so strongly to anthroposophy because they sense the need to add this new element to what human beings have previously succeeded in wresting from the world of spirit in past eras. But here we must acknowledge that in every epoch we must again come to understand anew the whole meaning of the enigma of the cosmos, that in every epoch we must meet in a new way what can flow down to us through revelations from worlds of spirit. Our era is a very distinctive one. Although every period can easily be called one of transition, this term does truly apply to our present age. An era is in fact dawning when people must experience many new things relating to our whole evolution on earth. People will need to think differently about many things, and much that is new today is still being regarded and interpreted in an old light an old style. It is still impossible for many people to really embrace and understand this new element in a new way. Often our ideas and concepts lag a long way behind new revelations. Let me just remark upon one thing by way of example. People have repeatedly and rightly stressed the huge advances in human thinking that have led over the past four centuries to our ever greater understanding of the physical structure of the cosmos, the great achievements of figures such as Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, Giordano Bruno, and so on, have been rightly acclaimed. But on the other hand, I'd like to recall here a thought that sounds very clever and runs roughly as follows. The ideas of Copernicus and Giordano Bruno have given us an understanding of space and taught us that our small planet 
exists alongside countless other planets in the cosmos. Yet we say that the earth is supposed to be the place where the greatest drama was played out, the midpoint of evolution, and that the story of Christ Jesus should be seen as this midpoint of our whole evolution. How, then, should an occurrence of such cosmic significance happen to take place upon this little planet Earth of ours, since we now know it to be just one among countless planets? This thought, a very understandable one, appears to be very clever and astute if we regard things only intellectually. Yet it is an idea that takes no account of the depths of spiritual feeling, the latter also embodied in the fact that at the very beginning of Christianity this event on earth did not even occur in a royal palace or in some grandiose setting, but in a stable with poor shepherds. In other words, placing this occurrence on the earth was not enough for spiritual feeling, but it insisted even on its being a small, disregarded corner of the earth as well. Someone has even very curiously compared this to quote, performing the greatest drama of world events in a provincial theater. Close quote. In fact, it lies in the very nature of Christianity not even to present this great drama in a provincial theater, but somewhere else altogether. We can see, therefore, how difficult it is to bring right feelings, true feelings, to bear on things, and how much people still need to learn to recognize what the right thoughts and feelings are toward human evolution. We are approaching tumultuous times, and it can be said that much of the old is no longer of use. A new element is flowing into humanity from the world of spirit. It is not because those who know something about human evolution wish it, but because the history of humanity compels them to state that our whole inner life will change in the course of the next centuries, and that the anthroposophic movement, if aware of its true mission, must stand at the outset of these changes, in all humility, but with real understanding of what must occur for humanity over the coming centuries. For however true it is that people have only learned over the course of time to regard the structure of the cosmos intellectually, as taught by Copernicus, Giordano Bruno, Kepler or Galileo, that they have only learned over the last few centuries to interpret the world through their intellect, compared to former times when human souls arrived at their knowledge in quite different ways. So it is equally true that in our era intellectual knowledge will be succeeded by a new form of spiritual discernment. Already human souls and their bodies are seeking urgently to regard the world in more than merely intellectual ways. And if materialism had not set in motion so much that suppresses spiritual stirrings, such souls, whom one can feel tempestuously desiring spirituality, would have given far more expression to these stirrings. They are waiting only to look upon the cosmos in a different way from previously, to look upon existence differently. Those favored spirits who have received the grace, in quotes, as we can call it, of looking centuries into the future, can see what will later become a general vision in humanity. 
I have often spoken of how a figure filled with such grace, the figure of Paul, who at Damascus was alone in experiencing the impulse of the Christ event, prefigured what will gradually become common knowledge in humanity. Just as Paul knew through a spiritual revelation who Christ is, what Christ has done, so human beings will once more experience such knowledge, such vision. The time is fast approaching when a number of people will experience something like a renewal of the Pauline Christ event. This belongs to our earth's evolution, the spiritual gaze that opened in Paul outside Damascus that can see into worlds of spirit and can draw from there the truth that Paul himself would never have believed when he was told of the Christ event in Jerusalem. This spiritual vision is something many people will experience, and its arrival, which has been referred to as the reappearance of Christ in the twentieth century, is an historical necessity. Christ as individuality will be recognized as he revealed himself in his ever closer approach to the physical plane. From the moment onward, when he appeared to Moses in the burning thorn bush, as if in a reflection, to the point when he lived for three years in a human body, such vision will discern in him the pivotal point of all earthly evolution. Any system has only one point of focus, A pair of scales has only one balancing point. If you were to support the scales at several different places, you would violate the spatial laws of gravity. You need only one point of balance, one pivotal point for a system. For this reason, when speaking of the pivotal point of earth evolution in the true sense, the esotericists of all periods, both of ancient times and the modern era, acknowledge this emphasis this single point of balance of evolution as being the mystery of Golgotha, from which humanity's evolution ascends again. It is extraordinarily difficult to recognize the true meaning of the Christ event of the mystery of Golgotha for the spiritual guidance of humanity. You see, to do so we have to silence all the feelings and judgments that we bring with us from this or that belief system, If we wish to recognize the true spiritual focus of Earth's evolution, we have to regard the Christian schooling methods that prevailed in the West for many centuries with as cold and objective an eye as we regard other religious schooling methods in the world. You will find over the coming decades that those who most keenly proclaim this spiritual balancing point of humanity's evolution will be seen as, in quotes, bad Christians, and their very Christianity may even be denied. It is already very difficult to grasp that Christ could be incarnated in a human body only once, as it were in passing, for three years. Those who have acquainted themselves more closely with what Rosicrucian anthroposophy has to say about these things know how complex the physical body of Jesus of Nazareth had to be in order to take up the mighty individuality of the Christ. We know that not one person but two had to be born to enable this to happen. The St. Matthew Gospel tells us of one of them and the Gospel of St. Luke of the other. We know that the individuality who was incarnated 
in the body of the Jesus boy, of whom Matthew speaks, had previously achieved magnificent things in former lives on earth, but this individuality departed from his body at the age of twelve to assume a different earthly body until the age of thirty, and to evolve further in this body, developing other capacities. In this way, everything of magnificence and grandeur on the one hand, and on the other, the deepest humility that had been experienced previously in humanity had to merge and work together to form the personality we refer to as Jesus of Nazareth in order to render a body capable of assimilating the being who can be called the true Christ. Deep understanding will be necessary to understand the unique nature of Christ, to understand what the occultists mean when they say that just as only one fulcrum can exist in mechanics, so only one event of Golgotha can take place. In a time facing such mighty inner upheavals as I briefly intimated today, it is particularly apt to look inward. And amongst many tasks that the true anthroposophist has within this spiritual movement, this is certainly one of them, to look inward, into one's own soul, into one's own heart, so as to recognize that renunciation is inevitably involved in the path we pursue to understand this unique truth, of which esotericism of all eras clearly teaches. Eras in which the brilliant light of wisdom and warm gifts of love are to be poured out over humanity, inevitably also bring with them something that confirms the truth of the saying, where there is much light, there too are dark shadows. The black shadows that accompany the gifts I have referred to are the capacities for error. The great gifts of wisdom that are to flow into human evolution are necessarily bound up with the fact that the human heart can easily be exposed to error in such times. Let us not think, therefore, that the errant human soul will be less infallible in the times that are coming. We must understand that the human soul will be more exposed to errors and failings than, than at any other time. The occultists of all ages have prophesied this out of dim inklings. It is certainly true that in the days of illumination we have only been able to mention in passing it will easily happen that errors and indeed the greatest confusion, will take hold. It is all the more necessary, therefore, to look clearly at this capacity for error, to be clear that in anticipating great things, it is all the easier for error to occupy the frail human heart. If we now consider the spiritual guidance of humanity, this capacity for error, of which the prophesying occultists of all ages have warned us, should teach us this, to practice the very greatest tolerance of which I spoke today at the beginning and to relinquish everything that belongs to a blind belief in authority. Such faith in authority can seduce us, can lead directly to errors. On the other hand, we must open our heart with warmth to all that now seeks to flow down to humanity in a new way from worlds of spirit. For this reason, an anthroposophist worthy of the name, will be someone who knows that if within this movement we are to cultivate the light that seeks to enter human evolution, we must at the same time become guardians 
against the errors that can also insinuate themselves. Let us feel the full responsibility that this implies. And let us have the open hearts we need to understand that there has never previously been a movement upon our earth in which hearts could be cultivated in such a warm, open, and inclusive way. Let us learn to understand that it is better to be attacked by those who think that their own opinion is the be-all and end-all than for us to attack these others ourselves. A long road must be traveled between these two extremes, but those who encompass the spirit of the anthroposophic movement will know how to live with something that has rightly existed in all ages as a central motto for all spirituality. You may sometimes be overwhelmed by doubt at the thought that though strong light is present, this brings with it the grave possibility of error. And how are you, as a frail person, to orient yourself? How are you to decide what originates in truth and what does not? If this thought rises in you, the following maxim can bring you strength and reassurance. Truth will always bring the highest impulses for humanity's evolution, and this truth should be dearer to me than myself. If I have this stance toward truth, yet go awry in this incarnation, then truth will have the power to draw me to itself in the next. If I am honestly mistaken in this incarnation, this error will be balanced out in the next. It is better to make honest mistakes than to adhere to dishonest dogmas. And before us will shine the thought that not through our will but through the divine power of the truth itself, this truth will be victorious. But if what we are compelled to embrace in this incarnation is not the truth, if it is error, and if we are too weak to be drawn toward the truth, then let what we profess lapse until it will not have the strength to live and should not have the strength to do so. If we honestly seek the truth, it will be the victorious impulse in the world. And if what we already possess is a portion of the truth, this will not conquer within us through proofs we can offer for it, but through the power that indwells it. But if it is error, then we will also have the strength to say, let this error lapse and perish. If we make this into our guiding maxim, we will find the right perspective to say that we can always gain what we need within a spiritual movement, and that is trust. If what this trust offers us is truth, this truth will conquer however much its opponents attack it. This sense of things can live in every anthroposophist. And if we are to mediate to others what flows down to us from the world of spirit, and awakens in human hearts feelings that give assurance and strength for life, then the mission of the new spiritual revelation will be fulfilled, entering humanity as what we call anthroposophy, and increasingly it will bear human souls into a more spiritual future. The End of Lecture 12